So Genesis 31, if you've been with us, um, maybe you've noticed something. And I'll explain it like this. A number of years ago, we had two foster kids with us, Harry and Hunter. Uh, Hunter was three years old. Uh, Harry was his little brother who was born addicted to opioids and in the NICU for nine days. My wife was over in Medford uh, during that time, and then we brought him home. And they stayed with us for under a year, eight months, nine months, something like that. Just really, really great experience with them. Well, Hunter's three and um, had been raised differently. So there was a Sunday when after church, my, at that time, 10-year-old son Elijah had a game in Medford. So we kind of packed up. It was Elijah. It was Myron, my four-year-old, Hunter, the three-year-old, and Harry, the newborn baby. And we headed over to watch the games at U.S. Cellular. So we get there and, you know, you put out your blanket and there's families everywhere. And it's just, it's a beautiful spring day and it's wonderful. And, um, Charity was watching Harry, the newborn, and my job was to keep an eye on Hunter, the three-year-old. So uh, I can get distraction very easily, especially when my kids are playing soccer because I want to watch him play soccer. So I'm kind of watching um, Elijah, and then all of a sudden, Hunter comes over, the three-year-old foster kid, with a soccer ball. And we had not come with a soccer ball. So I'm like, hey, buddy, where'd you get that soccer ball? And he said, it's mine. I said, bro, that's not your soccer ball. It's mine. I said, what, did you just make it? Did you make it out of turf? How did you get this soccer ball, right? And I, no one's like complaining at that point. So I'm like, well, okay, it's okay. Well, a minute later, over comes this like eight-year-old girl and she's trying to get the ball back. And he's like, no, mine. So I'm like, Hunter, give the girl back her soccer ball. It's my soccer ball. No. So you know what happens when you're with other people, you notice stuff like that. So heads are starting to kind of look over and I'm like, hey, Hunter, give the ball back to her. And this eight-year-old, she's so sweet. She's like, do you want to play soccer with me? So Hunter's like, yeah. I'm like, whoo, okay. <laughs> Problem averted, great, right? And they're playing soccer, it's good. So I go back to Washington, Elijah, play soccer, right? And then I hear this screaming, maybe two or three minutes later. I look over and now Hunter is over and the, the field's kind of back up to each other. So this side, you're watching the field on that side. And then on that side, you're watching the field on the other side. So we're backed up to each other. He'd gone over on the other side and he was laying on another little three-year-old boy's blanket. Like mom had spit out a blanket for her son and Hunter was now on that blanket and the kid's mad, get off my blanket. So I'm like, uh-oh. So I go over there and the mom's like, uh, your son is on my blanket. I'm like, Hunter, get off the blanket. No. And so he rolls up like a taco in it, right? Just to make it even worse. So I just grabbed it and went, shink, here's your blanket back, right? And Hunter is not happy. He's ticked. He's like, gets on the ground. He is throwing this fit, screaming. Now, not just if everybody is looking at me. So I'm over there, I'm like, Hunter, um, and I get down on a knee, like, I'm gonna do this real, I'm gonna maintain composure. You will not get me, Hunter. I said, Hunter, you need to get up and come back over to us. No, I want the blanket, no. So I'm on my knee and he jumps up and runs off, right? So I'm down on my knee and I'm kind of looking around and I get up and I start following him and he's running around this mom. And I'm kind of following him, Hunter, come here. And he's like keeping on the other side of this mom, like everybody, 30 or 40 people are watching me at this point. And I'm just like, I bet I'm turning beet red at this point, right? So I'm like, Hunter, stop, we need to go back. So he just takes off running over there. And then I'm stuck there and I'm looking around at all these people looking at me. There's a couple things I wanna do in that moment. 
One of them was this. He's not mine. He's a foster kid. Not my kid. I did not do that. I did not create this monster, right? But I couldn't, right? You just can't do that. So I just had to say, uh, sorry, thank you. And I walked away. And when I sat down, and I don't know if this was God or me, I sat there and I thought, I wonder if God ever would like to say that about me. He's not mine. He's adopted. I didn't do that. My son, perhaps you've heard of him. His name is Jesus. Doesn't act that way at all, right? (laughs) So we're, we're in the book of Genesis. And you see these guys that maybe as a child, you heard their names and you tend to hold them in this high regard. And Abraham. And then you read a story. And you're like, he did what? He lied about his wife all the time? Let her get sucked into people's harems? He slept with Hagar? Oh, what in the world is this guy, right? Like, they lower a notch or two. The Isaacs, man, the dude played favorites with his boys, caused all kinds of problems there. What? He doesn't seem like a good dad. Jacob, I, the list just goes on and on and on. Like this dude is a scoundrel, liar, deceiver, cheat, terrible brother, terrible son. Like what in the world? And you can begin to think, is God ashamed of these guys? Like what is God's opinion of these guys that we hold up as heroes? Maybe you can feel the same way about yourself. Is God ashamed of me? There's this great text in Hebrews 2.11. And it says this, that both the, depends on what translation you have, the reconciler and the reconciled, whatever it is, uh, depending on your translation, both the one that sanctifies and the sanctifier, that's my translation, um, are one. And because of this, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That when you and I, come into Christ, we're one. God doesn't see us as a foster kid. God doesn't see us as something else. He sees us just like Jesus. It's an incredible, amazing truth that the Bible says this, you are thrice royal citizens of heaven. Do you know that? That there are three ways somebody could become royal. You could be born into it, and guess what? You are born into royalty, John chapter three. Look at the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. You must be born into the kingdom. You're adopted into it. That was the second way you could become royalty. You're adopted into it. Read Romans chapter eight and read Galatians chapter four. We're adopted royal citizens of the kingdom. And then there's a third way. You could be married into royalty. Guess what the Bible calls the body of Christ? The bride. Revelation over and over, we're the bride. We're thrice royal citizens of eternity. That should give us hope. Maybe you've doubted yourself. Maybe you thought, man, I'm like Abraham. I'm like Jacob. I'm like, no problem. And I doubt any of us in here are as dysfunctional as the people that we've been reading right now. They're as dysfunctional as they get. It's Jerry Springer on steroids. 
And yet God is not ashamed of them. He loves them and uses them. And God is going to draw straight with crooked lines like he always does. This is the most brilliant book because it's the beginning book. It's showing us the heart of the Father, which is so good. So let's jump in to this sordid tale. Verse one, chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban who were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Trouble, right? There's trouble in the family business. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then Yahweh said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. There's envy in the family business. So Laban, who is Jacob's uncle and father-in-law, I know it's strange, but that's the way it is. Uh, his sons are now looking at Jacob, whose wealth has grown, and they get jealous Look how Jacob has taken advantage of our dear, kind, benevolent father, <laughs> which Laban was not, and they knew that. In chapter 30, if you were here two weeks ago, we learned that the moment Jacob makes a deal with Laban, he goes and takes all the stuff that Jacob had just signed as his property and moves it three days away. That was day one of the deal. He's always been doing it, and they gave it to his son. So his sons knew dad's a lying, cheat, and a thief. Just a warning. Be careful of going into business with family, right? It can start out well, but man, I've seen it happen over and over like this. Sometimes it does work out right, but I'd say the majority, 90% of the time, you got, you're going to choose one of two things when you go into, family with your, into business with your family. You're going to choose your family or money. That's it, one or the other. Either it's I'll choose family and money can't be an issue or I'm gonna choose money and I'm gonna lose my family, right? That's what's happening right here. Rarely does it work out well. But here's what God's gonna do. He's taking this envy, he's taking this family drama and what it's doing is this, it's poking and prodding Jacob to get him home. Man, when my life is starting to get tumultuous, when there's events outside of my control, when there's things happening that make life uncomfortable, it's now my radar goes up. What's God doing? Is he trying to move me somewhere? Did I leave a promised land? Did I leave a place that I need to return to? What's happening right now? Radar goes up. So Jacob is told by God, time to go home. Time to go home. Verse four. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. Notice what Jacob does. We've been reading this, and there's these conversations that happen inside of the tent. And what happens when there's a conversation inside the tent? They don't seem to figure out that tent walls are not soundproof. So everybody hears the conversation, and then it gets really bad. So what does Jacob finally learn? Let's go way out in this field. Let's get way away from everybody. Go out in the field and we can have a private conversation. So they go out in the field where his flock was and he said to them, 
I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in the dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. One of the best little sections so far in this drama, right? Like, I love this. Jacob's not a bully. He doesn't say, wise, get the kids, we're going. What does he do? Like in the past, we've seen men treat women really badly. Abraham lying about his wife. Laban switching daughters and doing all kinds of underhanded stuff. Jacob's breaking it. He takes his wives out, says, here's the situation. What do you think? And what you see is a massive change is if you paid attention, God appears seven times in this conversation. God's barely in chapter 30. You never hear his name. It's baby wars and drama and envy and money and garbage. This is the first time you see God being the center. And when God becomes the center of this family, there's unity, right? How good is that? They say, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Jacob finally puts God at the center and his family becomes unified. All the mess and all the envy and all the bad stuff, now it's starting to like coalesce and good is coming from it. This is telling us something that is one of my favorite qualities about God, what he's able to do with messes. And I've showed these pictures before, but th these are some of my favorite pictures. Every one of us has this picture right here, <laughs> right? Even the dog is mad at him, like, bro, really? Look at me, look what you've done for me. It's you, right? Just the best. We all have that picture. But look at this other picture. That's what a kid did and look what a mom did, right? Kid made the mess, mom made artwork. That's what God does. 
God takes the mess of Jacob and the mess of Laban, and now he's going to make beautiful artwork out of it, a tapestry, right? Ephesians chapter 2, 10 says, we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship would often refer to a tapestry where people would weave together, right, these, these gigantic carpets. Have you ever seen someone working together and making a big tapestry, right? The side that they're working on is knotted and ugly and you can't see what it is, but then they flip it over and it's this beautiful, incredible design. That's so much of life. God, what are you doing right now? It's knotted and weird. I can't see what's happening. And then it gets flipped over. You get to chapter 31. Oh, you're making something beautiful. Ecclesiastes says this, there's a time for everything. Good stuff, bad stuff, hard stuff, easy stuff. But it says this at the end, verse 11, and God makes everything beautiful in his time. The one thing that this family is doing right now, trusting and obeying God. Whatever God has told you to do, do. By the way, that is the big message of the Bible. Trust and obey. That is the big message of the Bible, right? So verse 17, the great escape. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Camels at this time, they were the Ferraris of the age. If you're poor, you're walked. If you're a middle class, you rode a donkey. If you were wealthy, you had camels, right? So Jacob is a Bedouin billionaire. He's got his Ferraris, puts his wives on them, and off they go. He drove them away with all of his livestock, all of his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead, the great escape. And then Rachel has to sabotage it. On the way out, for some reason, she looks over and she decides, we can't just go with God's blessing. We can't go unified. We can't go simply. We're gonna take these little teraphim, that's the word there. We're gonna take these little teraphim with us. And this little mistake will complicate the next 15 years. Gotta have them with us. So if you don't know, there are two kinds of idols in the Bible. There's the big giant idols that are in the temples, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and those things. Giant, massive, ornate. They had priests and they had a whole system around them. But there were another kind of idol. It's this word right here. It's the teraphim. So these were the home version. This is the DIY idol. Get on YouTube, carve your own, coat it in gold or silver or bronze or whatever it was. And you would have it kind of in a windowsill or in a certain kind of place and you would venerate it. And it's this word teraphim. And they were bad. So you can look up if you want 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 24. And it 
links the teraphim with this Hebrew word, gelulum, which means literally a piece of dung, which is a nice way of saying it. And yeah, and shikutsim, which means a detestable thing. And the entomology of this word, it comes from a Hittite word, tarpi, which literally means demon. So not good. Now, why would you have something like that in your home? Well, they believed, number one, that the teraphim would cause fertility. So Rachel, who has big struggles having children, why might she grab those gods? Ah, maybe if I take these with me, I'll get some more kids when I'm in the promised land, right? Number two, they would be consulted. You'd have these rituals and tea leaves and this kind of stuff. They would be consulted so that you could get wisdom on making decisions. So there's this great little story about Nebuchadnezzar when he's coming down to take Babylon and he's at this crossroads. Should I go down to Jerusalem or should I go up to Damascus? Where do I go? And in Ezekiel 21, 21, it says he consulted his teraphim to learn what counsel do I take? So maybe Rachel was worried, hey, my dad's gonna come home. He's gonna see we're gone. He'll consult with these idols. They'll tell him where we've gone and he'll track us down. That could have been why she took them. But there's a third thing that these represented. And it was literally the title to the land that there was an idea in that time that land actually had powers over it. And there was different powers for different lands and different abilities and bigger powers over bigger lands. And it's backed up scripturally. Read Deuteronomy 32 verse eight where it talks about lands being given over to the little G gods, the Elohims, the Ashtoreths and the Baals. And then you can read the book of Daniel where he knows about what's coming. He reads a prophecy, realizes he sets himself to pray and fast for an answer from God. And he has to do it for 21 days before finally Gabriel gets there. And Gabriel's like, bro, I was sent the moment you started praying, but I couldn't make it through this power over Babylon and had to call in reinforcements. Michael the archangel had to come and the two of us together were able to defeat him and I slipped through. So that's some kind of power over that area, right? So maybe, maybe she was taking the title to the land. This actually belongs to me. I didn't get my dowry. I didn't get my, so I'm taking this as title deed this land. I don't know. The question is, do these little images have power? Do idols have power? So I grew up in a church where I can remember the sermon and I don't remember many sermons, but this one stuck in my head because there was a guy that was a missionary and he'd come in and he was sharing about this family that had a son that had really bad nightmares. Every night, screaming, terror, horrific, demonic nightmares. And they tried everything in the world. What's going on? Why is he having these nightmares? And then this missionary went to their house and he was walking down the hallway and he saw this display case on the wall and it had in it a tribal mask from Africa. And he said, that tribal mask is a portal for demonic influences and they're coming in and giving your son nightmares. Well, I tucked that away in my head, right? Like, whoa, that's scary. Then I go to Vanuatu for a school year to teach the Bible there. And they're very much similar like paganism and tribal masks and all that kind of stuff, all that's there. So graduation time, um, these students 
as a gift, made me a chief staff and a tribal mask. And they presented it to me. And I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do with this, right? And Dave Corson, who's the, the principal of the school at the time, he said, Matt, listen, you're going to take these home and there's going to be these people that will say, look out, Matt, these are demonic. Tell them to shut up. That's just silly. These things were made with love by students that love you so much and they're trying to show you their love. They're made with love. That's just silly and ridiculous. So who's right? Is it a portal for demons or is it just a piece of wood demonstrating someone's love? If you're interested in this, Paul goes through this quite in depth. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. Three chapters to this idea, and it's kind of woven through there. So in chapter 8, verse 4, he says this, hey, those idols, they're nothing. They, he, right there, he agrees with Dave Corson. They're nothing, right? But then, just to complicate the Bible, in chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, he says, oh, but by the way, behind the idol is a demon. What? <laughs> Which is it, right? You just made things really complicated. Is it nothing or is there a demon behind it, right? Do they have power? Yes or no? They only get borrowed power. That's the only power they get. Maybe it's, it's like this. If you look at the idols of the ancient world, they all represented something. So if you worship Ashtaroth, what you are actually worshiping is sex. And the rituals around it were all revolving around sex. Does sexual sin have a power to it? Oh my goodness. Ask somebody that got involved in pornography if there isn't a power to that sexual sin. If it doesn't take you darker and darker and darker and make you into something you could not imagine you were. I have sat and talked with men, crying and sobbing about what they have become because of sexual sin, but they had to give it a power, right? But all represented the mind and humanism and we can do it on our own and we don't need God and that. And so does that have a power? Absolutely, look at our culture now, right? Moloch represented success, that if you wanna be successful, offer your firstborn on his arms and then you'll be successful. How many people have offered a child an inconvenient pregnancy because it was interfering with success? Does it have power? Oh, absolutely, it has power. Am I worried about my Vanuatu mask and staff? No way, no way. It was made with love. I got no worries about it. I don't, I don't have any worry about darkness. You know why? Because I turn on the light, because I cling to Jesus, because I'm not giving that stuff power. I'm not letting it in, right? I'm shunning, Romans 12, 9, I'm shunning evil and clinging to good, and it has no power. Now, you start dabbling in that stuff, man, you, it's like power steering. Once you get it started in that direction, zoom, you're off. You're off. So it's yes and no. Oh, just stay away from it. Don't mess with it. Cling to the good. Turn on the light. Shun evil, right? So they grabbed the gods. It's with them now. When it was told Laban, 
On the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lie? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban comes home, house is cleared out. For seven days, he's pursuing Jacob thinking, stewing, waiting, contemplating what he's going to do to that scoundrel, like a boiling pot. And then on the seventh night, God shows up and says, nope, you don't get to do anything to him. Oh, right? I want to punch you, but I can't. God won't let me. Darn it. But the one thing he can take issue with, he does. You stole my gods. Where are my gods? If your God can be stolen, get a different God, right? It's pretty simple. The real God just showed up to you in a dream multiple times. Just cash in the ones that can be stolen. You know what? I'll take you instead. <laughs> Laban could have been like, you know what? God just showed up, Jacob. I love you. You're my son-in-law. Go. But he can't. He's got to hold on to the one thing to still make a stink. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? We hold on to the one thing we can still make a stink about. Instead of being like, you know what? God's got this. It's in control. You know what 1 Corinthians 6 says? Paul says to a group of people that were so happy, he says, why can't you just be defrauded? Don't you understand that you're a billionaire according to the gospel? Why are you squibbling and fighting over pennies? Stop it. Stop it. What Laban should have done is, hey, I just want to say goodbye. I just want to kiss my daughters, kiss my grandsons, and say goodbye. That's what he should have done. That's the right way to do it, but he can't. Instead, he's got to make a stink. So verse 33, then Laban went into Jacob's tent 
and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. <laughs> Close call. But you want to stop any dad? Just say, yeah, I'm on my period. Okay, I'm out. I'm out. See ya. Enjoy. I'm sorry. Right? How awkward is this? <laughs> I think Laban couldn't even imagine that someone would sit on his gods. Like he couldn't even imagine. Could be that Rachel doesn't believe in their power. Could be that Rachel's so worried about her life. I don't know what. But you see a theme right here. Jacob decides not to do things right again. Verse 20, it says he tricked Laban. He knew what he was doing. I'm going to trick Laban. And he sets in motion these events. So then Rachel does her thing. She steals the gods. For whatever reason she had, she stealed the gods. Now she has to lie to her dad, right? And now Jacob, you're going to see in verse 36, blows his top. Absolutely blows his top. Gets ugly. Because sin always begets sin. You know that? One sin is always pregnant. It's just waiting to produce more and more and more sins. I don't know how you would do this, but at some point when you sin, keep a journal of how many other times you have to sin because of that one sin. When you tell a lie, how many other lies you have to tell to try to protect the one lie that you told, right? Because sins always begin sins. And I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. There's this great study that says when you lie, it makes you stupid. Oh, that's my problem. Okay. Here's why. When you tell the truth, your brain is really easy. Your brain just has a file. Here's the truth. And every time there's somebody around, it just brings out the truth. You tell the truth. But the moment you lie to somebody, our brains are really good at networking and understanding community. So then what your brain has to do is like, okay, who does this person know? How many people, how does it get back to them? How do I have to twist and manipulate the truth to make sure that this person doesn't learn the truth and that every time I see them, I tell them the lie. And your brain is constantly spinning that plate for every lie that you tell. How many plates are we spinning in our heads? It makes us stupid. We lose horsepower, right? Pretty soon you got no horsepower left and you just trip and fall on your face. People say, why'd you fall? I'm a liar, that's why. I just lie, I don't have any horsepower left. I can't even walk anymore. Sin always begets sin. That's what happens. Jacob could have done this. The moment God talked to him, he could have said, all right, Laban, God just spoke to me. He said, it's time to go home. I'm leaving. And then trusting God. That would have been a simple, easy way to have done it. A lot cleaner, less problems. But he chose not to. And this sin is actually gonna fall him for 15 years until finally they get rid of these teraphim in 15 years. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. 
This is an honor society. The young never do this to the old. He is breaking every single cultural custom right here. He blew his top. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your, your, ewes, have, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by a wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, an interesting way of describing Yahweh, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Whew. God got you. Jacob, I have been faithful. I served you. I worked for 20 years for you. You've been a jerk. But God evened the deck. This is an ugly conversation. And it will be the last conversation Jacob has with his father-in-law, Laban. What a bummer. What a bummer. I have a bucket list. And my bucket list is this. I want to make things right with people. I've written letters to people I can't get a hold of. I have meals with people. I've sat down. I've fallen on my sword. Because one of my things is I want to make things right with every single person I possibly can. Anyone I think that has odd against me or maybe there's some misunderstanding. I don't know what's going on. Man, it's one of my bucket lists because I don't want this hanging over me. And you know what the key is to make sure you don't have problems with people? It's James 1.19. Be slow to anger. Jacob wasn't. He snapped. Be slow to anger. Has that ever failed you? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I should have snapped quicker. You know, if I ever got anger, angry a lot, lot sooner, things would have been a lot better. Has that ever failed you? No, right? That's like the easiest, wisest thing to do. And then James explains why. Because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Our wrath doesn't help God, it hurts. It doesn't help him. How do I control it? It makes me so angry. Okay, a couple things. Never rename your anger. Admit what it is, I'm angry. Don't say, well, you know, I was just frustrated. You know, I was just hurt. You know, I was just sticking up for myself. No, you're angry, right? Those are stupid. Number two, never play the victim. He just gets me, she just gets me. No, anger is always an inside job. Now, some people are better at getting inside of you, but it's still an inside job. 
And then thirdly, confess it. I got angry. Make restitution to whoever you got angry with. Ask for cleansing from God so that your last conversation with somebody like your father-in-law is not like this. Somebody you lived with for 20 years is not this conversation because it's a bummer. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flock. And all that you see is mine. (laughs) What an angry group right here, right? He is just, if God had not spoken to him, Jacob is dead. This is all mine. I want it all. But what can I do this day for these my daughters, for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar and said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. They are there by the heap. And Laban called it Jeger Sahadutha, but Jacob Jacob called it Galid because he could not pronounce the first word. So he just changed it on the fly. Like, I am not calling it that, bro. We're calling this thing Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, Yahweh, watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which you have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, that's their dad, that's Laban's dad, grandpa, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban rose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughter, daughters and blessed them. Didn't kiss or bless Jacob. Then Laban departed and returned. Sin begets sin. Jacob gets hot. Laban gets hot. He's so frustrated because he knows this. I can't fight God. But I do like this about Laban. He knows something about God's work. He has bumped into God enough now that verse 32, or excuse me, verse 50, if you oppress my daughters or take wives besides my daughters, God's gonna see, he's a witness. He's now entrusting his grandkids and his daughters to God. God will take care of them. You know what good father-in-laws do? They release their daughters to God. They don't try to micromanage or helicopter out or fiddle with the marriage out there. They, okay, I raised you for 10 years, 20 years, whatever it was, you know, if they're blended families, 25 years, you're married. Now I'm entrusting you to God, not fiddling in it. But here's how this story ends. Laban goes home empty. Laban goes home frustrated. Laban goes home mad. And here's why. He lives for himself. 
He used people to get more things. He was a win at only any cost. He changed the rules 10 times because he was always trying to make sure he wins. And he's empty. Jacob is learning to trust and obey, allowing himself to be taken advantage of for his wives and for his kids. You'll see that. And he's full because there's a principle. Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Who are we? In 2024, who will we be? Will we be Laban's? I'm the center, change the rules, make sure I win, dog eat dog world. Man, I'm gonna step on whoever's required. Because in 20 years, you'll be empty. Or are we gonna be a people that are willing to be like Jacob, who's being transformed. Jacob was a Laban, but he's moving and moving and moving. And in chapter 32, one of the greatest chapters, he finally meets God head on and he's actually changed from heel snatcher to Israel, which means governed by God. The final change comes. Not about you. You want real joy in 2024? Jesus, others, and then you. One of the best acronyms you can ever remember. You want joy? Put Jesus first, Christ first, Christ-centered, others. How can I make your dreams come true? How can I bless you? How can I let myself be taken advantage for your sake? And then lastly, think about yourself. That's the goal. Jesus, this year, 2024, may we be joyful people, inviting you in as the center, as the unity, as the hub, our true north. May we consider others better than ourselves. And then lastly, may we put ourselves, may we be servants of all. May we learn the lessons that we see repeated in Genesis, that sin begets sin. It's bad. And it gets worse and worse and worse. May we shun evil and cling to the good. Help us. Fill us with your spirit even today, so that tomorrow we can walk out well what we've learned in Genesis. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.